Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day. I'm super pumped today because I'm a big ancient history buff and I really like Andrew Collins. If anyone's ever watched Ancient Aliens, he's been on this show for, I don't know, almost, what, 20 years now, however long this thing's been out. But I love the fact that we see things today we're trying to understand. And this is nothing new. If anybody thinks this UFO thing is a new thing, it's not. It's been happening for thousands of years, maybe forever. We have no way of knowing. And you look at ancient text, even religion, and a lot of the stuff that's written in there. It's man's feeble attempt at trying to explain extraordinary visions and sightings and angels and all this stuff. Maybe it's misunderstood technology. Maybe it's misunderstood entities or beings. But regardless, it's fascinating. So I've got a bunch of questions, Jay. I specifically, I want to get into things like elongated skulls. Like, what's that all about? Is, it, is that <laughs> real? Or is that bullshit? I want to know. And like giants. It's a fashion trend that should come back. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, the it, elongated skull? Is that well, it? Yeah, well, people are like... Uh, I don't know if you see those. Occasionally, you'll see like a beautiful woman that starts going through all these plastic surgeries to make herself look like a, I know, just a cat or something, right? Yeah, old horns, demons, and stuff like that's a new thing. And some, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by that. (laughs) Yeah, so I think we're not covering that on today's show. No, Uh, not today. But you know what? The elongated skulls kind of remind me of that sort of like old practices to change your appearance. And back then, you didn't have you know, cosmetic surgery or anything like that. So it was a long process. So it was dedication for sure, man. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, again, um, we don't want to just kick the can as far as history goes. We want to know specifically in regards to UAP, non-human intelligence, what do we know for sure? What can we safely say is fact? And what can we safely say is like legend or lore? So it's going to be interesting. I know Andrew is an old school ufologist. Before he got into sort of the earth sciences, he was very much into investigating UFO cases, uh, a very famous one in in England as well that he uh, will mention, I'm sure, when we ask him. So um, looking forward to it. This has been about uh, six months in the making. Andrew joins us from across the pond. And uh, for those of you listening out there, whether it's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or the UnX network, we just want to say we hear all your feedback, all your comments. We love you guys right back. Keep it coming. Absolutely. We'll keep doing what we do. This is just starting to get interesting, and we're three years in. So with that, I'm excited. We'll be right back with Mr. Andrew Collins right here on UAP Studies Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my best buddy, Jason Gilmet. You know what, Louis? I'm very happy that we're not wearing the same matching coat today. Uh, we've done that in a few few podcasts that we didn't know what we were wearing. It's almost like we're psychically in tune to wear almost the same color blazer. You always look way much more sharper than I do, my well, man. But uh, yeah, and I'm really excited about today, uh, Louis. You brought on a great guest. And that's a fun thing about, you know, especially having a co-host that knows this phenomenon as much as i do is that you'll know people that i don't know or you've heard about people that i've never heard about and we get to introduce each other to new people which is part of the research and part of what you know our field what we're trying to do so i'm I'm so happy louis that you reached out to andrew and uh yeah man that's this is gonna be awesome 
Yeah, I mean, you can't study ufology without looking at ancient history and looking at depictions and ancient stories and legends. And even within, you know, religious records, they're there. And, and so we're so are high technological craft, perhaps. Right. So it's worth talking about. It's worth discussing. Today's guest is no stranger. Most people know who he is. He's a, a brilliant science and history author, written many books. He's a, does speaking engagements, conferences, all that. He is a regular feature on the TV program Ancient Aliens uh, and his recent book, The First Female Pharaoh. Uh, he's going to discuss um, a little bit later on in the episode about that and uh, where you can find it and what's up next. So we're going to get into all things ancient history, ancient peoples, culture, cool stuff. Uh, but first, a big welcome to our new friend, Mr. Andrew Collins. Good day to you, uh, gentlemen, and uh, nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, giving us your time. You're across the pond from us right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're on the, the, the left pond, the Pacific pond, and you're... Uh, in the UK at the moment. So we appreciate the time. Um, so first, before we get into topics, tell us a bit about obviously yourself, your previous work, and what specifically about these topics? Why ancient history and sort of the occult and, you know, that type of thing? Okay, well, um, from my own point of view, um, I got into the subject of ufology in the mid 1970s. I know that's a long time ago. And most of you would not even born at that time. However, um, we're not that young. You know, we're not that I, young. <laughs> I, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I became passionately interested in in UFOs, but had previously been interested in things like ghosts, astral projection, dreams, um, things like this, basically. And you know, and and it was one of these subjects which, as a an early teenager, you're into, and then you sort of forget about it, and then you you know get to high school and other things you know take your your priorities and then you eventually go back to it and I, I did and I started reading you know dozens of pulp paperbacks by the likes of Brad Steiger um uh, John Keel um you know Jack Valley you know like this and I decided that I wanted to get involved in this subject I decided that I wanted to connect myself with you know UFOs uh, as they were back then and I mean, so I, I became an investigator for the British UFO Research Association. And to start off with, it was a case of just going around uh, interviewing people that seen a light in the sky or something. But very quickly, I started to get onto close encounters, um, you know, and I eventually became a, literally a troubleshooter for the British UFO Research Association what was known as the UFO Investigations Network, which was run by Flying Saucer Review, which was the main magazine back in those days. Um, and um, the coordinator was Jenny Randalls, obviously a, a very well-known uh, UFO writer who I knew very well back in those days. And the, the thing was is that the, obviously the, 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 the more close encounters that you, you connected with, the, the closer you felt to the phenomena until eventually I investigated the first ever UFO abduction case involving a whole family and oh. a car in Britain. And this was in the county of Essex, which is where I am right now. And they were going along a road and um, they saw this 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 object go across. Um, it was blue oval um, lights. You know, they were quite excited by it. And they drove around the corner and suddenly... The car headlamps failed, the um, the engine failed, uh, the car um, radio started smoking, they had to pull out the wires as you used to do in those days, 
Um, and they could no longer hear the, the tires going over the, 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 you know, the, the road. So they get around this corner and there's this luminous bank of green mist right in front of them. And they plough into it and everything just stops. And they feel very nauseous. And the next thing they know, they're three quarters of a mile further on. And they get home from this really short journey. It was only about 20 minutes, one they take regularly. And they realise that three hours were missing from their life. And they lived with this for about three years. Um, and they would occasionally have dreams of being in bright rooms with these weird gnome-like creatures and things like that. Um, and eventually they brought it to the attention of a UFO group who contacted me and I interviewed them and eventually did a, a quite a major two-part um, case investigation in Flying Saucer Review. It became known as the Averley Abduction, uh, a very famous case over here. And um, the thing was is that not only did, you know, this bring me even closer to the phenomena itself, but hypnosis was involved and the supposed entities involved with this um, abduction experience started to speak through the the vocal calls, both of the, the man and the woman of the family. And, you know, they would come through and, you know, tell you about propulsion systems and weird shit and whatever. But the thing was, is that, you know, suddenly I felt I was connecting with some kind of intelligence. Now, at the time, I was happy to accept that it was space aliens that had come on, come here in a flying saucers and somehow could communicate with people through telepathy. But as I went on, I started to realise that it wasn't as simple as that. I mean, having read books like, um, you know, The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel and whatever, you start to realise that the whole idea of nuts and bolts spacecraft and flesh and blood aliens is insufficient to account for so much of what is happening out there. Um, and for a while, I actually got quite disillusioned and I got into the Earth mystery, what we call the Earth mysteries. That's investigating megaliths and stone circles and ley lines and energies and stuff like that. Um, and then sort of two things dovetailed at that point. Firstly, the works of a guy called Paul Devereaux, um, who wrote who wrote books like Earthlights, Earthlights, Revelations, suggesting that that many UFOs, genuine UFOs, could actually be the product of extreme geologies within the Earth that allow the right environments for these objects to manifest. Um, and that that not only that, you know, the Earth was creating them, but they also had sentience or intelligence associated with them as well. And I started looking at this and thinking, this, these are incredible ideas because you had previous to this time, people like Trevor James Constable, uh, with his book, The Cosmic Pulse of Life, which suggested that UFOs could themselves be living entities. Um, and this was like an extension of that idea. The other thing was, is that going back to this Averley abduction, it played on my mind a lot, particularly as, you know, the man involved, a guy called John Day. Um, he said, look, we never saw a landed UFO. Um, and he, he was troubled by the explanation that this was a pure abduction case and i started looking at it again and when the family came out of this experience three quarters of a mile further on losing three hours there were three children in the back two of which were asleep one of them was in the middle with his hands on the driver and the passenger seat now this is the way that they went in and they were in exactly the same position and the, the other two children were still asleep when they came out of this and i thought well 
does this mean that the aliens just put people back in the right positions and have a way of making people go back to sleep? And, you know, this is convenient so that people don't remember what happened. Or, and this is what started coming to my head, is did they lose that time instantaneously? In other words, were they removed from what we call space-time, you know, three dimensions of space, one of time, into a multi-dimensional environment that I started referring to as a bubble universe that sort of opens up, um, that they can become a part of and interact with, and the brain can create into whatever it perceives is in front of them, almost like a living dream. You know, is, is it is this possibly what happened? And is it possible that these intelligences are not so much extraterrestrial, but ultra-terrestrial, or indeed trans-dimensional in nature um and of course once that started hitting my head i started rookie writing books like the circle makers which was partly a book on crop circles but also on this whole subject we've been talking about i did a book called alien energy in 1994 in 2011 i did a book called light quest which followed on all of these ideas um and then most recently i did a book called origins of the gods which was co-written by my colleague um greg little and that, that has an introduction or I should say a forward by eric von daniken um obviously we know from chariots of the gods and was an inspiration to me as well i mean what his books did was to show me there was a relationship between ufos and prehistoric and ancient sites you know that there may well have been intelligences involved with influencing the design of technology and civilization in the past and this was the thing that that really started clicking in my head that is that the case you know have we been helped by these trans-dimensional beings you know possibly also extraterrestrial beings across a prolonged period of time if so how long and how much interaction did they have with our ancestors to create monuments like the great pyramid Stonehenge or any other place around the world. So that is it. My interest is looking at the intelligences and how much impact they've had on both human evolution and human civilization. And you know what? That's a fascinating thing about our situation here. And I, I, I'm curious about this because I'm sure that you've contemplated this over and over again. But in our history we're so arrogant in what we think we understand from history which we have very little knowledge of i it was talking to louis about a documentary that is recently on netflix where they discovered a cave with hundreds or thousands of bones that are not homo sapiens they are from our genome but just a different species and you know as we're going through time uh even now with the hearings and everything that's happening in the world when you mention, hey, maybe these entities have had an interaction with us for quite some time, and this has been going on for a long time, we're just now either rediscovering it or we're now paying attention to it. And you brought up a good point of the ultra-terrestrials. Um, basically, through time, how did we handle the thought of others um, being here? If if it is the case, like, did we handle that or can we handle that? better in the past than we do now because now we feel so confident with our technology that the same events that would take place instead of being in awe it's almost a jealousy that we would have inherent human nature being what it is so 
Do you think we had an easier time maybe back in the day to accept this as opposed to how we can handle it today? Well, yeah, I mean, there's probably sort of two areas you can go with that. One is in the modern day, and it's obviously only really been since 1947 that we've interpreted this phenomena as technology. Well, when I say technology, I mean future technology that is associated with other planets, other star systems, you know, possibly even other dimensions. Um, I mean, clearly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you had the, the airship wave, um, and of course, we saw that in terms of future technology, but we had no real concept of them coming from other planets. So we assume they came from, you know, hostile nations, basically from Germany or wherever else. Right. People want to, you know, in other words, you know, they'd see the space, the, these airships, they'd come down. They would see these people come out that look a little bit different to themselves. And they would speak in a foreign language, which they'd assume was German or something or Russian or presumably or whatever. I don't know. But, you know, and then, of course, obviously come into the, the space race age um, and, you know, the nuclear bomb age. And quite clearly, we're seeing it now in terms of future technology, uh, as far as we're perceiving it, having come from another star system. And I mean, as Jacques Vallée himself pointed out in books like, you know, Passport to Magonia, is that what is happening today is merely an updated version of something that's been going on for thousands of years. And, you know, if you'd have encountered the same type of object, let's say in medieval times, um, you'd have gone towards this light, perhaps by a, something called a, a barrow or a tumuli that had never been there. You'd perceive it as a doorway. You'd go, you'd go to this doorway and you'd see the fairies inside dancing in a circle. You'd go and join with them. You might eat something and then come out and find hours, if not days, if not years, have passed. Um, and, of course, Jacques Vallée was the first person that started to realise that modern-day abductions were simply the updated version of these fairy encounters. And, I mean, if you really look at these fairy encounters, I mean, some of them are so similar to modern-day UFO encounters. You know, objects, entities coming out of them, doing weird things, getting back in, flying off again. I mean... It's there. I mean, it's there in folklore, and those accounts have been preserved in, in various books. So, you know, we have merely updated it. But going back into the past even further, I mean, in Origins of the Gods, I take it back 400,000 years um, because I focus on an area in Israel um, around Tel Aviv where there's a cave there uh, known as the Kazem Cave. And there were highly advanced peoples there at this time, between 400 and 200,000 years ago. And close by, you have a mountain where they would go to procure the raw materials for their stone tools. Now, they had plenty of materials, you know, that they could pick up and use to make stone tools. So why would they want to go about 15 miles away or whatever it is to this mountain that you can see on the horizon? And the fact is, that this mountain in the book of Genesis is the mountain of God. It is the place where God manifests. I mean, forget Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't even on the map. Mount Zion, is that correct? And it's a place called Mount Gerizim. Oh. Um, and Mount Gerizim was also seen as the, the, the gateway to heaven. Uh, I mean, so many different you know titles that it has. It was clear that it was important. It was the place that when the first 
proto-Israelites reached the promised land. It's the first place they went to under the leadership of Abraham. And here he has a vision of, 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 of you know, the God of the Israelites. And he says, build an altar here. And they do. And it's the place where Jacob sees that the angels going up and down between heaven and earth. Um, it's the place where God was said to manifest in his form as the Shekinah. And the Shekinah essentially means the light of God. It's an Ar- Aramaic word, meaning light appearing, God appearing as, as a blinding light, like he did to Moses on Mount Sinai, for instance. Um, so you've got a mountain here clearly connected with an otherworldly intelligence that manifests as light. Well, if you start looking at Mount Gerizim, you'll find out that across the past few hundred years, it has also been associated with light phenomena and in more recent times, you know, UFOs. So, I mean, I actually went to this mountain, and which and the mountain is actually located uh, above a city called Nablus, which is obviously in the news for all the wrong reasons um, because of the, the conflicts over there. And I went there and I climbed the mountain and there's a very ancient religious community on the top of Mount Gerizim uh, belonging to these people known as the Samaritans. And they are they claim to be the, 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 the original descendants of the Israelites. And I went up there and I, I found the highest ranking priest and through an interpreter, you know, I said, you know, I asked him very questions. And I, I said, look, I understand that strange lights are seen on the mountain. They said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he said, they're still seen to this day. I said, well, what are the, how are they interpreted? He said, Malachin which I knew, you know, from my, my, my study of languages, means angels. So these manifesting lights that we would call UFOs are being seen to this day as angels by this religious community. I thought, how Eric Von Daniken can you get? You know, this is like something out of a page from Chariots of the Gods, you know what I mean? And of course, so all of this is written up in Origins of the Gods, and I was so happy that, you know, Eric you know, thought loved this stuff so much and the way where it was going that, you know, he he agreed to do the, the forward to the book. But the, the thing is that going back to our people there in the Kesem K 400,000 years ago, is, is it possible that they were attracted to this mountain because of the lights that were appearing there? Because if these lights are a product of intense geology, you know, like fault lines, metals, certain types of minerals like quartz or whatever you know this creates the right environment into which this phenomena can manifest and if it is intelligent it is sentient did they interact with it did they have experiences that we today would refer to as abductions or close encounters and did this accelerate their creation you know their creativity in the same way that many ufo um, abductees or people that have missing time claim afterwards you know they they suddenly become writers they become poets they become artists even the family involved with the Avery abduction the the man of the house became um, a sculptor a beautiful sculptor previous to that he was just working in a factory um, his wife went on to become a midwife and she actually went out eventually um, to Iraq at the time of the, the Gulf War um, and was helping, you know, women deliver babies out there. I mean, incredible career. You know, and all of this unquestionably was the response to them having this close encounter 
you know, with this this green mist and this object back in the 70s. Now, you mentioned that it was almost like they weren't put back in the same positions when they were abducted. It was like there was a time slip or they were somehow removed from time space and then brought back in that instance. Well, yeah, but I, I think that it happened instantly. I, I yeah. think that in our world, in our space, it went like that instantaneously. And wherever they were taken into would have had its own laws of time. It would right. have had its own laws of physics. So, you know, they, they, they could have spent, I don't know, 10 hours there and it would be completely different to the time that they were away. And how long were they away? No time. But because they were placed outside of normal space time, when, when they, they, they regurgitated out of this higher dimensional um, space, you know, it, it, it's out of sync with, with, with our linear time so they've lost three hours and quite clearly if you look at these folklore accounts uh people lose years and sometimes if you read the, the accounts 100 years has passed now okay let's assume these are massive elaborations um but it's still telling us the same thing that if you enter into these multi-dimensional environments you're taken out of normal space time and that when you're put back it's almost like there's been gravitational distortions or something that has created these anomalies that are only relevant once you've been placed back into this world. I mean, the thing is that what happened to these people if they did lose this time? I mean, they certainly didn't slump by the side of the road for three hours because I know the road that, that they were on. And that somebody would have stopped within five minutes and said, are you OK? You know, they already got the police or whatever. There's no way that they could have, you know, been slumped in their car for three hours on that road without somebody coming along to see if they're okay. So, you know, they were clearly taken out of, of, of space and out of time. And when they come back, they've lost three quarters of a mile spatially and they've lost three hours in time temporarily. Yeah. And we know space and time are linked, right? With uh, Einstein, they are relative. Yeah. And the faster you travel closer to the speed of light, the more time would slow down. So in theory, if you left Earth for a year at the speed of light, when you come back, decades yeah. could have elapsed, yeah. right? So that Ooh. would account. But it, what came yeah. to mind when you were mentioning that was sort of the extra tempestrial theory or the thought mm. of backward time travel. Future humans, not aliens, not anything different from us, perhaps maybe evolved that we look different through millions of years of evolution. But what are your thoughts on the idea that they may be us in the future? I mean, many abductions, people have asked their abductors and said, like, who the hell are you? And they're like, we are you. So I, I find think, that well, very interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think that we have to be care very careful about what any of these entities claim. Um, any information that is transmitted or even the way that they appear to us. Because in my opinion, we are dealing with intelligences that are so advanced. I mean, not just thousands, but arguably millions of years in advance of us that they don't need physical bodies. They don't need flesh and blood. They, they appear to us because it's for us. We need that. We need some yeah. kind of what I call acceptance level that allows them to be familiar to us in some way, even though we might see them as, you know, futuristic, 
their technology, you know, something that's maybe hundreds of years ahead of anything that we've got. So, you know, that ultimately I believe they don't even need flesh and blood. Now, that's not to say that some flesh and blood, you know, let's say carbon-based life forms have not worked out how to utilise these multidimensional environments to travel from one place to another. I think this is, we have to see this as likely. You know, we have to see it that they are like wormholes. They are like black holes in their own right. You know, they are made of something primarily called plasma. Plasma is the false state of matter. And, you know, plasma is is what you see in lightning. It's what you see in stars of neutron stars, black holes in the, the accretion disks around them. Um, you know, it, it, obviously we use it on televisions, you know. And well, I saw it yesterday. I blew up my washing machine uh, very briefly. Um, but, um, but you know, th- this is an environment. It's not alive itself. But in the 1960s, a um, theoretical physicist working with plasma by the name of David Bowen, uh, he uh, was American, but he spent most of his life in the UK, studied plasma and came to the conclusion that into it, intelligent life could manifest uh, from a deeper level of existence that he referred to as the implicate order. Um, His colleague Basil highly referred to it as the pre-space. Some people might call it the the quantum field or subspace or something like that. In other words, it's a realm without dimensions outside of our own physical existence, our own physical reality. Um, And that because it's outside of normal space time, it doesn't have the same laws of physics and could well um, allow the passage of thought, intelligence, consciousness to travel within it to control and manipulate matter from from different places, Um, you know, through a process called quantum entanglement, which is the idea of particles being entangled. You know, you've got one particle and it's entangled with its twin. It doesn't matter how far away they get. In time, they will always retain that that link. You deal with whole systems of particles, uh, a tangled particles. Some could be in my head. The other, the other parts of them could be in your head. So that, you know, if they're doing the same dance, that would be telepathy. But also on a macrocosmic level, it's now accepted by scientists, you know, cutting-edge scientists today, that entanglement is involved with the with the mouths of, you know, hypothetical wormholes and and even that they may be the things that keep open black holes from one end to the other. So, you know, we're not dealing with something that's just simply a quantum theory anymore. This is something that's associated with the macrocosmic world. And I think that this is related to plasma environments and that, you know, our interaction with this phenomena involves quantum entanglement not just to interact with the phenomena, but also the intelligences behind them. And, you know, so many people, for instance, you know, encounter objects and feel a relationship with them. You know, they feel that they that that they are either watching them or that, you know, that, that they feel some connection with them or that they've always been around. And they'll spend years afterwards trying to remake that connection because it's almost like the same connection with a mother or a father, or you know what I mean? Yeah. And you have to try and answer this and say, what? why would people feel this way about this peculiar phenomena that they observe or interact with? And it's because 
it, you're dealing with something outside of normal space time that's suddenly interacting into our space time. But if it interacts with us now, then because it's outside of normal space time, it could also be interacting with us on the day that we're born and the day that we die at the same moment, because you're dealing with something that's outside of our own linear passage of time, the arrow of time, as they call it. Yeah, and there's a lot of similarities, too, because, I mean, in religion, especially because I used to be in Christian religion, so I'll speak on that behalf, but uh, the idea that God is outside of space, time, and sees everything at once and, and all that, that's a concept that's been around for a long time. To us, I mean, this is a reality, and the reality is linear, and there's, you know, sort of rules, but we state absolutes as a species, which to me is ridiculous. I mean, uh, recently, uh, was it Neil Tyson DeGrasse, or I always get his name backwards. Neil DeGrasse Tyson. Neil DeGrasse Tyson. Jeez, I can never get it right. This is why I have Louie. He's he's my, my name guy. Um, but, you know, like, it's almost like an arrogance that some of these scientists have, it's almost like a dogma of saying, well, no, it's ridiculous. How could there be, you know, for a guy who studies stars and planets, the idea of having visitation from advanced civilization is just, it's beyond his comprehension. He's got to knock it down, which to me is like, you think somebody of science, somebody who's smart and intelligent would say, yeah, the probability that, you know, we're at the bottom of the totem pole is very high. Um, and this is the part that I always think about you know, going forward is, can we handle that having a, a superior and let's call it that it's a superior uh, intellect and technology. And like you said, could be millions of years in advance. That's a huge humble pill for us to swallow because we think we're king shit, you know, um, that nothing can touch us, that if aliens invade all our Hollywood movies, we have ships that are going to take them down. And guys like Will Smith will always be there to defend earth. Um, and it's ridiculous. That is a concept that is not true of reality. And the thing is, however complex the situation is, we're out of our depths. Like, you know, yeah. uh, it's just something that, you know, Louis, you, what, what you're saying, it's beyond our thinking or ability to think. Yeah, it's not uh, stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can think. Yeah. yeah. And we're limited as, as homo sapiens. Like we're stuck thinking the way that we think. We can't think outside the box. Um, I, now I want to ask you about this because we're huge Bob Lazar fans. And, uh, he mentioned out of the nine crafts that he saw while he was there, that one of them or two of them could have been archaeological digs, which to me just blew my mind, meaning how long were they in the ground? And if that's old technology, their old technology that we can't even reverse engineer now, how much more advanced are they now? Um, you know, what, what's your thought on that? Like, is it possible that we have a bunch of crafts that are just laying around and based on your history and research? Uh, um I, I, I mean, my honest answer is, A, I don't know. Um, but secondly, I would love that to be the case. Absolutely, 100%. Um, but beyond that, I, you know, we have to be a little bit careful because, you know, even with some of the recent revelations, um, you know, coming out suggesting that, you know, there is this massive cover-up, something that we've obviously, you know, known about for years, but now it's getting much more traction within the the international media. You know, and obviously within the the U.S. government agencies and everything, is that we have to be careful not to see some of the that that some of this could be misinformation that's deliberately being put out there. Um, you know, to because obviously we we've got a lot of troubles in the world at the moment, and you know, 
by get directing somebody to look in one hand and not in the other is going to take away the heat from some of the, the the much more crucial stories that are going on in the world right now. Um, it happened in the 1950s, for instance. Um, you know, the, the, the US Navy unquestionably uh, got onto certain uh, UFO or supposed UFO authors and basically told them to put stories in books, particularly by Gerald Hurd, um, to do with, you know, UFO crashes. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, Gerald Hurd in one of his books, I can't remember which one it is now, um, I think he had about three different crashes talked about, uh, you know, including uh, aliens and, you know, just, you know that, that were discovered with them. And it was later realised or discovered that, that all of this was just plants because they wanted to this information to get to the Russians to give them the impression that the, the US were reverse engineering this, this technology and therefore they were much more advanced than anything that the Russians had. So we have to be careful that this is not being used in the 21st century. But beyond that, I mean, yeah, I would love it to be true. And the one thing I can say is that there has been a lot of UFO encounters where stuff has been left behind, you know, whether it be, you know, physical pieces of metal, liquid, molten stuff falling out of it, um, and other artifacts which unquestionably were collected up afterwards and are today being analysed, um, you know, by laboratories, uh, particularly in, in the United States, I'm sure in other countries of the world. And we need to look at those. We need to look at the isotopes. We, look, we need to look at the, the composition of them, you know, to, to actually confirm whether they could have come from outside of, you know, the planet Earth without outside of the solar system, you know, and possibly even outside of space time itself. In other words, that they are in a, a, comp, a, a chemical composition using isotopes that just don't exist or certainly would be virtually impossible to create unless you had an incredibly good reason for down on this earth beyond that i don't know i wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of the the fossil record of things you know and particularly like strange non-human fossils and i was fascinated when i read about like the hypogeum and giant skeletons in sardinia and things like that so two things really stand out for me one is elongated skulls now i'm not talking about the ones that they do in you know, traditions where they're binding the head. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about ones that don't have that typical sagittal suture, which we all know as Homo sapien we should have, which is where our skulls formed as a baby. So mm. I wanted to ask you about giants and skeletons yeah. of giants and mm. elongated skulls with no yeah, apparent sure. sign of sagittal okay. suture. Right. Well, firstly, let's go for the elongated skulls. I mean, there are unquestionably um human populations around the world over the past you know several thousand years that have had long skulls and I'm, I'm but i'm not talking about huge great egghead type ones um you know talking about just elongated skulls and it would seem that those cultures are the ones that want to accentuate that by using the you know boards and yeah. um, bands to actually increase the strangeness of their elongated heads. I mean, this seems to have happened in uh, Mexico amongst the Maya, for instance. Um, uh, the, the there's uh, was it um, the, the the snake priests, serpent priests? I can't remember what they're called. Uh, the Shan Shan priests of the Maya um, wanted to um, elongate their skulls 
in memory of their founder, whose name was Itzamna. Um, and, you know, it was said that he was serpent headed, you know, so clearly he had a head that looked different to, you know, to, let's say, the locals. And I, I would say that, therefore, he had an elongated head. So in other words, these people believed to be were believed to be descendants of Itzamna because that's why they're in this this, you know, this elite priesthood. So they probably had long heads anyway. But for some reason, they wanted to accentuate that you know, to create it almost in an abstract manner, to, you know, to try and emphasise their own past. And I think this is something that's gone on all over the world. I mean, in um, the Near East, which is where I do a lot of my work, is that there are Neolithic sites there where, again, people with long heads have deliberately elongated them even further. Um, and this is amongst the, the a culture known as the Halif, culture so probably about 6000 bc and slightly later the ubaid culture um probably about 4500 uh, bc um and the two are related anyway but you know so in other words there is this this necessity this need to elongate our heads further than they were in other words the, the people that are doing it have long heads in the first place the whole idea about the sutra stuff, this has come up so many times. I've talked about this on Ancient Aliens. I've talked about it in books. I've had conversations with you know, well-known uh, figures in this business. And a lot of that is rubbish, I'll be honest. You know, this idea of these sutras, um, you know, being missing, you know, they can, they, they can be, when they're stitched together, they can actually disappear. Um, and this is not something that's absolutely unique. So, you know, you have to be a little bit careful with a lot of what you read about these elongated heads. Don't believe everything that you read, please. Um, the other thing is giants. Is that there were giants, you know, in this world in the past. We know that thousands of skeletons have been found at Native American mound sites and cemeteries all over the continent. Um, and many of these are seven and a half feet possibly even eight feet some of them even longer um and the statistical uh analysis of these skeletons shows that they can't possibly be from some kind of genetic mutation like gigantism which obviously does allow people to be extremely yeah. tall and obviously create some of the greatest you know base basketball players that, that we have um this is not the same thing you're dealing with a human population that was clearly incredibly large in size, possibly the size of some of your largest, you know, American football players. Um, again, up to about seven to seven and a half feet tall. So who were they? Well, all the evidence that we have is that they are the descendants of a human cousin of ours called the Denisovans. Not the Neanderthals, they were small guys, the Denisovans. You know, most of our evidence of them comes from Siberia, from uh, China, um, uh, the Tibetan Plateau, and a few other locations in, in that part of, of Eastern Asia, uh, sorry, Northern and Eastern Asia. And um, what little we have of their bones and what we little we know about their origins, having come from an earlier type of, of human population known as Heidel, Homo heidelbergensis, is that these guys were incredibly large in size and they would have been as much as seven seven and a half feet tall 
Um, that's all of the indications. I mean, I've written about this in books like Denisovan Origins um, and the Cygnus Key. And so it's out there, you know, that, that there were these giants and they had incredible abilities and they were credibly developed and their skulls would seem to have been the largest in the world. And yes, they were elongated uh, in China, a place called Harbin in the 1930s, a skull was found and hidden in a well because it was being occupied at the time by the Japanese and it was only retrieved in recent times. And it's and the, the Chinese um, scientists who have examined it um, not only say that it's the largest skull that's ever been studied by science, which it is, I mean, properly studied, um, but they say that it's a unique species and they've called it, um, they call it Homo longi, which means the dragon man, the dragon, so it's called the dragon man skull. Um, but Western paleoanthropologists looking at this have said, this is Denisovan, this is a Denisovan skull. It matches in every way what we know and expect the Denisovan skull to be. So this has got an incredibly long thing. So in other words, the, the memory of these people with, with incredibly long occipital bones at the back of their heads is real. I mean, it's not only there with, you know, the Denisovan stroke, the dragon man skull, but also with the Neanderthals. I mean, they had extremely long skulls. And when some of their skulls were discovered, uh, particularly, for instance, in Iraq, a place called the Shanidar Cave, when they were first found, it was assumed that the Neanderthals had been binding their heads and elongating them because they were so long. But it was eventually realised, no, no, actually, they are natural. So this confusion between artificially binding heads and natural heads is something that's been been there probably for almost 100 years. So we have to be a little bit careful. But the general consensus of why these people would have binded, bound their heads is to replicate the ancestors who had elongated heads themselves. Now, that's our human ancestors. I mean, obviously, if some people want to see that in terms of, you know, replicating alien heads or whatever, that's up to them. It's a fascinating subject because, I mean, we always pause the questions of like, are we alone in the universe? And the thing is, in our past, it showed that we weren't alone at all. There was other species of humans. And weren't we shorter back in the past? It wasn't like four eight or four six was the common height back in the day. So a seven foot, nine foot tall person must have been super impressive. Um, when it comes down to genetics, and I don't know this as much as, as I should like, but uh, we are a very easy species. Let's just put it this way. And we get it on with other multiples humans. So how much of that do you think remains in our genome that, uh, you know, through breeding, through history, uh, these people disappeared, but are they still, you know, basically we, we have a mixture of all of them or is there some that completely disappeared? Yeah. I mean, the big year for this was 2010 because um, the Max Planck Institute in Germany extracted for the first time not only the genome of uh, the Neanderthal, um, who were a distant cousins of us that existed from, you know, let's say about 250,000 years ago down to about 40,000 years ago. But the same year, they also extracted the um, or sequence, I should say, the genome of the Denisovan as well. Um, and the incredible thing about this is that once we started looking at their genome and all the genes within that genome, 
we found that some of them we've got. So it's quite clear that the interbreeding that took place between us and Neanderthals and Denisovans has rubbed on us, rubbed off on us, um, giving us certain genes that allow us to do certain things today, whether it be immune to certain diseases, whether it be to exist in incredibly high environments where the oxygen is low. This is a gene that was passed on to us from the Denisovans, um, or even there are two genes that come from the Denisovans relating to autism. Oh, that, really? You know, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, that could well have been passed on to us. Um, and, you know, the, it, and, when, and with that, it starts becoming really interesting because although obviously we have a perception of autism today, you have to look in terms of the savants, you know, that these incredible geniuses that are autistic, that, you know, have abilities with music, with art, um, you know, calendar counting. In other words, they have this incredible, uh, you know, knowledge of of, of numbers that, that allow them to be able to tell you, you know, what day of the week the 21st of June 2041 will be or whatever, you know. Um, and a Wednesday, we, it'll be a Wednesday. We, <laughs> we, yeah, well, quite. Um, if we, if, if all of this had come from the Denisovans, then what type of minds did they have? Were they the first person that developed all of this themselves? The art, you know, technology, number counting, in other words, the use of calendars, the movement of the sun and the moon, you know, being able to calculate things like eclipses and stuff like this. So, you know, th this this is what's been passed on to us from these distant human ancestors that, you know, we call cousins, really. Um, and I think this this is the way forward. I mean, a lot of my colleagues look at that, you know, we got our technology or our civilization from Atlantis, for instance. I don't think you need Atlantis anymore. You know, we're, we're beginning to understand that, you know, these distant cousins of ours were possibly more advanced than ourselves. The Denisovans, the Neanderthals, early on you talked about the, this cave in, I think it's in South Africa, isn't it, where, you know, you've got, you know, these burials of these people called Homo nalidi. I think that's, that's the, the term of these, you know, this new type of, of distant cousin of humans that has been found there, which we only really, you know, are, are beginning to understand for the first time as well. So, you know, I don't think you need Atlantis anymore. I mean, Atlantis was a concept that Plato gave us uh, of this island continent somewhere out in the Atlantic. I've done a book on this called Gateway to Atlantis that, you know, covers it all and shows that he was almost certainly talking about the area of the Bahamas and the Caribbean and that this was knowledge that was reaching back into the Mediterranean world through ancient mariners, probably the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, that were bringing these stories not only of the existence of these islands that existed out in the far out into the Mediterranean, sorry, into the Atlantic, but also that they were A, occupied, B, that there were cities there. I mean, obviously, you know, in the Gulf Coast, you've got, you know, the... the the, the old Mex and whatever would have been there, possibly even the Maya. And, you know, they're bringing these stories, but they're also talking about this cataclysm that destroys Atlantis around 9,500 BC. Well, we now know that this was the tail end of an incredibly violent period of human history, which we call the Younger Dryas. 
which was probably triggered by a cosmic event, probably involving a comet fragment breaking up into the sky much earlier, around 10,800 BC. But this this knocked basically the Earth out of kilter for a period of around 1,200 years with wildfires, ice ages, floods, tsunamis, all sorts of other terrible things going on and a complete depletion of human population. This is where a lot of our knowledge was lost of what had gone on before. But, you know, with this does not necessarily come information to do with this shining golden city of Atlantis. That's still something that's of our hearts and our dreams, not of archaeology at this time. Before we ask you about your new book, I just wanted to chat about ancient megalithic sites or ancient buildings that some say couldn't have been made by humans, you know, pyramids and that type of thing. And my favorite is actually Baalbek and the Forgotten Stone. So this yeah. is a stone that's sort of half quarried, but never been broken away from the earth. But it's 1,650 tons in one stone. And in the actual, you know, uh, Temple of Baalbek, there's three of these things kind of, you know, 10 feet off the ground. So a, if you're going for simple, that's not the way to do it. Um, but I want to get your input on that. Why would they use such massive stones? You know, well, did humans do this? Is there any, yeah. you know, anything to say that it could have been assistance from elsewhere? What are your thoughts on these crazy difficult? Well, buildings? I mean, I've been I've been to Baalbek. I've I've seen the stone you're talking about. I've seen the other stones in the quarries that are about twelve hundred tons. I've seen the Trithalon, which are the three huge yeah. eight hundred ton blocks you know, well off the ground. They're not even right, on the, blows the base of yeah, blows And, mind. you know, I've, I've been there with my colleague, uh, Hugh Newman, and, yeah, we marvel at it. And, you know, you, you have to start looking at every part of that temple complex to see if you can work out how it was built in and in what order. And, you know, the, the, the conclusion that myself and Graham Hancock and, and Hugh Newman and others have come, is that, that there was something much earlier on that site. How earlier is almost impossible to tell, but I suspect it probably goes back to 2500, 3000 BC. So let's say early Bronze Age. And it involved the construction of these incredible large blocks. Um, but why they did it is a complete mystery. There's no real need to do that. I mean, you know, blocks blocks a couple of tons or five tons a piece would, would be sufficient to build whatever you want, like the Great Pyramid, if you want. Yeah. Um, so there's no need to do this. So I then start looking at the mindset of the people involved. You know, what's going on in their head to do this? Right. And the way I would compare it is Puma Punka, a site in Bolivia at the city of Tiwanaku where you've got these incredible stone blocks that are so multifaceted, not just for aesthetic reasons, but around the back and all the rest of it in areas which you wouldn't even see once it was in place. So why do that? Why do that? And, and, it, and to me, it does suggest a mindset that's almost autistic in nature. You know, in other words, one that is going to absolute obsession. And... To me, the most likely people that would be doing this are descendants of the Denisovans, you know, and they were giants themselves. And if they did have, you know, autistic genes and they were savants in their own way, then 
I think it's it's their descendants. It's this is the hallmark of the descendants of those giants, the Denisovans themselves. I think it was in your book, Origins of the Gods, where you said, uh, well, it was written anyway, that it's almost impossible to understand the mindset of megalithic people. As much as we try to imagine, we really can't. You know, our genetics were different, our, our just everything, our environment, what we knew was possible or not, you know, the lack of understanding with some things, maybe a greater understanding with others. We try to put that cap on today to make sense of it. It's it's a futile action. It's almost impossible to think the way they would have. Well, absolutely. And I mean, most of our ideas of, let's say, what the megalithic culture, the Druids were doing, you know, or even the ancient Egyptians, we we, we, we do it through academia and what they tell us was going on in the past. And the problem with that is that they always see it through their own mindset. So in other words, a, a 20th stroke, 21st century mindset. You, we've got to get rid of this. We, you know, we've got to see it through the mindset of indigenous peoples, because only by doing that will you be able to get a perspective of what they are trying to achieve or what they were trying to achieve in the past. You know, if if you leave it in in the the hands of you know white bearded guys, you know, lecturing at a university, it, it's not really going to give us the full understanding. So you've got to get yourself into the minds of those people in the past. And, you know, it, it would have been it would not have been like going to church on a Sunday. I mean, you know, the shamanic rituals that these people would have been doing would have been so deep, you know, so frantic. So, you know, so otherworldly that you'd think that they're all completely mad, to be honest. Um, but they were achieving something. They were achieving a oneness with intelligences that we are now beginning to understand, whether they are multidimensional, whether they are extraterrestrial, you know, or something else altogether. You know, we are beginning to understand that those intelligences exist out there and that our ancestors were very much in communication with them. And I'm not just talking about individual entities here. I'm talking about the possibility that even our own galaxy could be an intelligent being that the centre of it, which is a supermassive black hole uh, called Sagittarius A-star, you know, there's new theories to do with the concept of panpsychism that suggest that that itself could be an intelligent being, that it's create, you know, that in its creation is the galaxy and that every galaxy has its own intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, so we got to get to grips with that as well, that we could be dealing with some kind of cosmic entity which the ancients became aware of and one that eventually we'd come to call God. So, you know, we, we have to grasp all of these ideas and not throw anything out at this time. Kind of like if um, consciousness created the universe, like there was consciousness first and then it created the universe to inhabit and have a realm to exist. And it's quite fascinating. And even you were mentioning about uh, the autistic traits um, of these species and like just their amazing ability and thinking outside the box conventionally and the alien abduction phenomenon and people receiving telepathic downloads and amazing abilities. And it's fascinating because you could almost see those patterns throughout history, almost like we're getting help. Like, oh, here's a tidbit. Here's your part. You do this, you do that. It's fascinating. And the fact that we've had this many 
um, species of uh, living amongst us from the human, of course, branch, but that we're sort of like the victors, as far as we know, the victors of the, you know, the, the survival of the fittest. So it's, it's, you know, it's crazy. And you brought us some really great points. Um, quickly, let's talk about your newest book that uh, you brought out. Uh, Louis, I think you had some uh, info on that, right? Yeah, The First Female Pharaoh. And it's about, uh, now correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Sobek Neferu? That would do. Is that the okay? Yeah. That'll do. Perfect. Yeah. So tell us about it. The first female pharaoh. People usually think of Cleopatra when they think female pharaohs. So uh, tell us about this character. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, we think of Hatset Shut. Um, we think of Nefertiti. We think of Cleopatra. But the first female pharaoh was a very extraordinary woman by the name of Sobek Neferu, which means the beauties of Sobek. Sobek was a crocodile god, very ancient star god, um, going back right the way to the beginning of dynastic history. And we know very little about her because her whole life was suppressed. And the reason for that is that she reigned just before a, a, a dark age in Egyptian history known as the Second Intermediate Period, which she eventually became blamed for. But in fact, she actually saved the day because, you know, she set up, uh, a new dynasty during her lifetime that basically was quite nationalistic in nature at a time when the borders of um, Egypt had been opened to the peoples coming in from Canaan and from Sinai that were getting stronger and stronger in the country to the point that they were virtually taking it over. But she managed to set up this dynasty, which was the next dynasty up called the 13th. She belonged to the 12th. And you know, it kept alive the flame of, of Egyptian nationalism to a degree that eventually their descendants rose up against these invading peoples known as the Hyksos and drove them back out into Canaan, you know, modern day Israel, Palestine and Syria. But if that had not happened without her reign, Egypt would have fallen. There's no question. And it would just have become another city state of, of Canaan. Um and yet, unfortunately, due to the, the the fact that there was so much chaos and darkness during this period, she eventually became blamed for it. And her name was obliterated from certain king lists. The place that she created this whole palace and settlement in the Fayum region, which is about 60 miles to the southwest of Cairo, um, you know, was was basically, you know, not mentioned, you know, in... in um, the list of the different districts of Egypt anymore because it's connected with the, the crocodile god. Um, but the thing is, is that we know her, even though you don't know her. And the reason I say that is that in the 19th century, um, Egyptologists started finding inscriptions with her with her name. And they didn't know anything about her because, you know, there was nothing about her in, in the books or what had been handed down, you know, in history to do with ancient Egypt. So there was a lot of speculation about who this woman was um, and what her role was and, you know, what she created. Did she create some kind of star cult? You know, what did she do for Egypt? And these ideas were eventually picked up on by a very famous Irish writer who thought that she would be a great character in an Egyptian novel that he was about to write. And that guy was Bram Stoker. Of course, we know him as the writer of 
Dracula, yeah. which had only come out a few years earlier. So he wrote this book called The Jewel of Seven Stars, in which Sobek Neferu was the um, yeah the main antagonist. You know, an Egyptian, sorry, a, a British archaeologist goes to Egypt, finds a tomb, brings back the sarcophagus, the coffin and the mummy to, to Britain and feels compelled to bring, try and bring her back to life. And the weird thing was is that when this book came out, the publishers called Bram Stoker back in and said, look, this this is so dark, mate. You know, it, it, for future editions, would, would you, you know, give everybody a, a happy happy ending to this 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 book, basically? So he had to change it. Um, but what's so interesting is that the, his story in The Jewel of Seven Stars becomes the role model of every Egyptian queen that comes back from the dead in films from that point onwards. The oh, latest okay. being The Mummy, um, which starred Tom Cruise that came out in 2017. Um, but the best of all of the films, I mean, the several, uh, was um, The Awakening that came out in 1980, which really does suss that the you know, the, the, the woman, the, the female pharaoh that comes back from the dead is Sobek Nofru. So it's weird that we know her, but from other, you know, but 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 not her name. She is that character. And she's also become very important to occultists who see her as like the avatar of some kind of star cult that was revived during her age and that has permeated through to this modern day. I mean, some people even see her as the foundation of like this grail line of kings, what they call the dragon line or the dragon kings um, that sort of permeates through to various different royal families today. Now, I'm not saying that's correct, but it's interesting how all of this has developed over the last 100, 150 years so that our vision of her is is quite different to that of Cleopatra, um, you know, Hatshepsut or, or Nefertiti. So it's, it's a fascinating story. The book is the, the first female pharaoh. It's the first ever book that's written about Sobek Neferu. Um, so, yeah, check it out. I mean, obviously, it's available from Amazon or any other good online bookstore and come onto my website andrewcollins.com there's plenty about her on there as well it's amazing that cancel culture goes back that far you know what that's i mean right. the, the original canceled person yeah that's crazy well that no absolutely you, you're right thinking about it that way um yeah <laughs> i didn't even thought about it that way but i mean quite clearly there is a lesson to be learned from what happened to egypt uh around 1800 bc you know to what some people might see as the political climate today but that's something we probably don't want to get onto unless we all want to get cancelled so right. oh we're not scared about getting cancelled we say what <laughs> needs to be said and uh we're not too worried andrew we could chat with you all day it's been a lot of fun we'll keep you just to the hour that we promised we would we don't want to overextend our welcome but we would love to chat with you again one day um sure. you know this whole ancient culture you are so well versed in this uh, I chatted with a few British colleagues that you also know, and they all have nothing but the highest remarks and regards of you. They say your research is top shelf. It's always accurate. You're just a machine when it comes to compiling, writing books, and you're doing this. And there's a lot of people in that realm, but you have a special flavor. You know, I've been bugging you for six months to come on the show for a reason, <laughs> right? So you have our highest level of regard and respect. And uh, we'd love to have you again one day soon, uh, if you'd be so kind. Absolutely. Okay. Well, awesome. Uh, anything else, Jay, before we uh, well, say adieu? 
Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna mention to people. Um, obviously, you know, click the the like and subscribe button. I think it's on this. Yeah, side on YouTube. Here. They'll yeah, see on a little YouTube. subscribe. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? We'd like to hear um, the listeners' uh, thoughts on this. I mean, we got people from all over the world listening to this, and just like you know, in your neck of the woods, what's uh, what's common, and uh, we love to hear that. Of course, if you have any questions for Andrew as well, post them. Louie and I do our best to answer every everything that comes through as best as we can. Sometimes we drop the ball, but that's not intentional. Um, you know, mostly on my end. Louie's just awesome at getting back to people. But uh, Andrew, this was awesome. I learned a lot from you today, and I, I hope to learn a lot from you going forward. And we talk about this all the time, how it's important to learn from different fields of study. And it's a complex issue, this, this whole phenomenon phenomenon is is super complex and involves every facets of our lives and it, it's implemented in every facets of our life and this is why it's so important for people out there to clue in how how deeply rooted this this issue is for all of us and it's crazy but thank you so much for your work uh you know i don't think people get praised enough for what they do and what they contribute and uh, every field of study is important in this i absolutely appreciate your time andrew and uh yeah please like and subscribe uh if you have any questions for us uh, going forward also, not quite sure when we're releasing this, but Louie and I are starting to do YouTube live sessions, and we are promoting them about, what, three days in advance? They're fairly Louis? random, so we'll give you as much notice as we can. Check out our Facebook page and follow us, because that's where we're making mention that, hey, we're doing a live show. Be cool to have Andrew on a live show. I don't know how that would work time-wise, because right now it's uh, like 10 o'clock in Canada, and what is it, 6 p.m. in the U.K.? It is indeed. It's yeah, dinner so time. it's hard to find a time that's uh, not too early for one person and not too late. And when we had Mary Rodwell from Australia, we got it screwed up because our Saturday or her Saturday was our Sunday or something like that. It was literally a day off. So yeah, yeah. logistics become difficult, but we'll leave it at that for the day. Uh, yes. Check out our Facebook, our YouTube, Spotify, Apple. We're on the Unex network and uh, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks again, Andrew. We wish you all the best. No, thank you for having me, mate.